Hey, Life Support listeners, thanks for joining us this week. We get to have a fabulous conversation with Dr. Bridget Beachy and Dr. David Bauman about childhood ACEs. Don't worry, we'll explain what that is in just a minute. And discuss really what we can do as clinicians, parents, caregivers, soccer coaches, just about anybody working with a kiddo to help make life better. So looking forward to the conversation with them. And just a quick reminder, if you could please like, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts, we would totally appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. Thanks all. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you two here today. If we could maybe just start with a quick introduction and for us here at CWHO, that's name, pronouns, where you're recording from today, what do you do when you're not working to start, and then what do you do when you are working? And I'll maybe start with Bridget. All right. So my name is Bridget Beachy, and I'm a licensed psychologist by trade, she, her pronouns, and I'm filming from Washington State. It's the part of the state that you don't think of when you think about Washington. It's very arid here and very few evergreen trees. And when I'm not working, you can find me golfing, hiking, spending time with my bearded dragon and my husband and my parents who are out here in Washington State with me, even though I am from Ohio and Pennsylvania area. And then when I'm working, well, like I said, I'm a licensed psychologist by trade and my day job is as a behavioral health consultant and director of behavioral health in a federally qualified health system. We have five clinics across our, our network here. And then also spend time in a consulting role for Beachy Bauman Consulting. Fantastic. Well, glad to have you here today. And I will turn it over to David. Yeah, I'm David Bauman. I go by he, him pronouns. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist. And Bridget and I were married to each other. So that's another reason why as a professional we do Beach Bauman Consulting together. What do I do as far as when I'm not working? Similar to Bridget, I love playing golf. I love traveling. I love spending time with family and friends. Yakima, where we call home, is a great place for different cuisines and different types of beverages. So we try to get out as much as we can throughout the town and enjoy the sun that we get plentiful. As a professional, I'm, as I said, a licensed clinical psychologist. I work as a behavioral health consultant within our community health center in Yakima, Washington. So I see patients as well as have administrative duties overseeing our training programs related to behavioral health. And one of the things I'm really passionate about when I'm a professional is bringing my whole self to work and definitely coming from a contextual compassionate lens that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about today. Fantastic. Well, so glad to have you both on today and really going to center the conversation around childhood and ACEs. And so I think that for some people, they're very familiar with the term ACEs and others aren't. And so we're not kind of blindly swimming in the alphabet soup that can be those acronyms. Can, can you all give just a quick elevator speech, elevator description of what ACEs are? Yeah. So the ACE stands for ACE is Adverse Childhood Events or Adverse ex Childhood Experiences. And the original study was with Kaiser Permanente in California. And there was 10 essentially original ACEs. And the it's around neglect and abuse. So physical, emotional, sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, and then household dysfunction. And so there was parental discord, domestic violence, legal difficulties, mental health conditions, and a substance use in the home. So basically, you got abuse, neglect, and then also that household dysfunction were the orig original 10 categories. But as we know, we've gotten a lot more refined 
about details and making them like, like for example, updating them because the original one had domestic violence and it was only towards the mother. And so now it's kind of a little bit more broad as we've moved into the 2020s. Great. Well, thanks for that description. And can you talk a little bit about why it seems like maybe in the last 10 to 20 years, it's really become an area of interest, particularly in the medical field? What what do ACEs have to do with somebody's kind of trajectory in terms of their medical well-being in, in general, kind of their quality of life? It's an interesting question why we're talking about this more now. And I think one of the main reasons that we're talking about this more now is that we have very robust research that just shows the connection between ACEs and then what shows up in adulthood. And really, every single thing that healthcare right now is really trying to work against and really trying to help people improve, we find a very, very strong correlation with people experiencing adverse childhood experience. So essentially, the more ACEs that an individual endures as they grow up, the higher the risks are for things like, for sure, such as depression and substance use and anxiety, and also things like diabetes and other chronic conditions like hypertension, weight concerns. Some cancers are actually even related to ACEs. So I think the reason why we're talking about this more is because we're seeing this robust research come out about the connection. Now, that's something that actually we've been talking about a biopsychosocial approach back in the mid 90s or the mid 1900s. Yeah, the 1970s, we started talking about the biopsychosocial. I would say this is probably one of the most researched areas to really make the biopsychosocial come to life about how all these things we can't separate out, that someone's biology is connected to the, the psychology, which is connected to the social context that they're in. The ACEs study is one of the ways I've really brought that to light. And Bridge, I don't know if your mind goes other ways. Yeah, I remember learning about the ACEs study from Dr. Sierra Swing. She was one of our supervisors during internship back in 2012 and 2013. She worked in a medical clinic and she started explaining how, yeah, there's this, this it's a linear with, with research. Basically, the more ACEs you have, the more likely you are to have cancer and COPD and basically every health condition out there. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense because if you've been through a lot, then you're going to probably be more likely to like maybe smoke or have some difficulties with taking care of yourself physically. And she's like, well, yes, that's part of it. But you're, there's this whole other part that even after controlling for, for diet or exercise or whatever we want to call lifestyle, after controlling for all that, folks who've gone through these ACEs, they all had way higher likelihood of a lot of, of course, mental health, but physical health conditions. And I remember that blowing my mind and being like, wait, what? Like just the phys physiological toll that it takes. And then you started hearing about the suicidality, depression rates. It was like for each and every out of the 10 major categories, each and every one, and Dave, you're better at this than I am with the research. It was both, it was linear as well as the frequency and intensity. What is that called in research where it's like the more that you get? Is it the stepwise or you, no, it's not because that's the linear part of it. Are you thinking, yeah, in like, like the heart response? Yeah. yeah. Chainsaw man. Here we go, I apologize. Yeah. You yeah. saved us. But uh, yeah, that dose response is like the more intense, the more frequent. And then just straight up one ace to two aces. And then once, you, as we, most of us who are familiar with aces, 
When you have four or more, that's unfortunately like the magic number in a negative way for a lot of really bad things to happen. And I think the the thing that has also come to this realization is really highlighting what Bridget just said there, that even after taking out someone's status as far as like, let's take smoking, which we know smoking status can definitely lead to things such as COPD, one of the main causes of, of COPD. Even after controlling, if someone smokes or doesn't smoke, ACEs predict who developed COPD in, in adulthood. And I think that's a big thing is, as healthcare researchers are starting to really look at this, we were starting to kind of see it's like, oh my gosh, like all the efforts, all the things that we're doing to try to prevent these things from happening, maybe there's a whole context. And we like to use the soil and the weed metaphor that a lot of times these things that grow up and we try to focus in on in healthcare are weeds, almost like a diabetes weed starts to grow or hypertension weed starts to grow. And we have all these great interventions to try to make these weeds go away, such as like, like a weed be gone that we spray on them to make them die out. And one of the things that we forgot to ask ourselves is like, maybe these things are coming from a soil in the ACEs research are really starting to promote is like, there's a context for these things to develop. And one of the things that really does lead to see like these weeds growing more are people going through some difficulties as they're growing up in childhood. And Nadine Burke Harris, who did her TED talk, she was a pediatrician. She asked that very question. Wait, why are all these kids presenting with symptoms of what might have looked like as ADHD and then going to the source and being like, whoa, hold up. There's a, there's a whole thing happening here. So I think that with technology and being able to do a TED talk, I think maybe that's why we've seen such growth. Because if you look at it, the research has been there since the 90s. But I mean, our entire master's degree and doctorate training, like of the academic part, it wasn't till internship that we had exposure to the ACEs. So it seems like it's taking a while to get into the literature. And the other thing that I would add to it is that probably another thing that's contributing to this is that our outcomes are not getting better for any of these things. Our outcomes aren't getting better for diabetes. Our outcomes aren't getting better for high blood pressure control. And and a lot of there's incentives now for healthcare systems to really focus in on proving these outcomes. And when we're seeing all these efforts and all these things develop and we're not seeing the results of it, that's where I think some of these other things we might have to start to look at. It's like, maybe we've been approaching these problems from a uh, not an inaccurate lens, just not a complete lens that we need to incorporate not just the bio, but the psychosocial. Absolutely. And that that kind of gets me thinking, like, first of all, fascinating, right? Like that that intellectual, just looking at the research, like you said, so taking away some of the other like health behavior, coping things, all other things being equal, what we control for it, these ACEs, we we see that dose response in terms of the outcomes. So there, there's the interesting reaction to that research. And then I think probably you both live in the world of like, okay, that's interesting research. What's the application in a clinical setting? How do we work with our practices? How do we work with the practices that we consult with? How do we work with families to translate this into something different? So can you talk a little bit about what this means for what clinicians can do and then also what it means for what families can do that are looking to support healthy, thriving kids? The, the one thing, and I, it's, a, it's a brilliant question, and one that Bridget loves telling this story. We were in a meeting a number of years ago, and we were talking about ACEs, and a physician actually said this, and I think it's a really good question of saying, this is interesting research, now what? Like, what do we do about this? Is this just something that we're saying, hey, this is the research, this is what it is, we have nothing that we can do uh, for a lot of different ways. So 
I, I think the first part is for providers, whether you're a, a behavioral health provider, whether you're a medical provider, whether you're a nurse or an MA or working in any type of position in healthcare, is reminding yourself to stay curious with people. Very quickly and very much because we're trying to be an efficient health center, we have developed algorithms just we implement kind of blindly and indiscriminately when anything shows up. And that oftentimes takes away curiosity from what we're, so when we're working with a human that might be struggling in some way, or might be presenting with certain behaviors, for us to remain curious about why that might be, what might be contributing to these things. And then I think, and I'm, Bridge, I'd love to hear where your mind goes. I think it also shifts our conversation about what healthcare centers are supposed to be, that we really need to focus in on healthcare centers being places that we see people for who they are that they feel comfortable in, they feel a sense of love and compassion when they walk through our doors, that so we can have these conversations of if things are happening currently right now of someone having ACEs, or maybe they've been through ACEs, and this causes a lot of difficulties with different medical procedures or different things that they're trying to work on right now. Healthcare needs to be able to develop a context where those questions make sense for patients to start to answer. And there's a lot of different strategies, and I think a lot of different interventions that we can do to really help produce that context. Bridge, where's, where's your mind go? There was a question that was coming up. It was like, okay, so you find out that folks have, so research has shown this dose response and it's very compelling. And the, uh, from a physician standpoint, it was kind of saying like, well, that's great that we know that, but not, yeah, exactly how Dave said, like, well, now what? Like, what are we supposed to do with the fact that this thing exists? And there's some truth to that. If you talk to Vincent Fletty, the principal investigator of the ACEs, if you talk to him, he will kind of say bluntly, in his opinion, the best thing we can do is to prevent ACEs from happening. And I, I, I went to his whole speech, so he had an entire context behind it. And so that's, that, that did make sense to me. And at the same time, I think we need to be very careful with that because ACEs, I'm going to steal this from Kelly Wilson, a psychologist, Kelly Wilson, ACEs aren't your destiny. So just because you went through ACEs doesn't mean that all these quote-unquote bad things necessarily are going to happen. It just means that things have been more difficult. And I think that when you're doing your clinical work, and as Dave said, you're creating this context that you really care about this person. You really want to know what's important to them in their life. And you want them to be able to like be able to live that life. If you truly are curious about it and you find out about ACEs or they reveal them, you can use that in a way to help them explain to themselves maybe some of the difficulties that they've experienced, maybe some of that running inner dialogue, maybe some of those quick-to-act actions that now that they're a parent, and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? You can always help them make sense of that and then pivot towards, okay, now that we know this, this doesn't mean you're a bad person, just means that we got to be a little bit more intentional, we got to be a little bit more focused, like let's talk some of this out, we got to come up with a strategic game plan and so that's kind of how I use it in my clinical work. And so when I'm working with families and I'm kind of seeing something happen, I'm actually very curious oftentimes about the parents' ACEs. And so I'll say things such as like, what were things like for, for you growing up? Or what kind of discipline style did you experience? And oh, well, and we went through X, Y, and Z, blah, 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 blah. And I might be able to use that to say like, so what you're trying to do is make sure that your kiddo is able to function in this world as a highly functioning person and you feel that it's your duty to make that happen. And so the way that you grew up and the way that you were taught were to do these things, 
but you're finding that maybe right now it's not really like necessarily having the results that you want it to have. And they're like, oh my gosh, well, yeah. And so in a separate conversation, especially if you're dealing with peds, you can talk with the parent and just kind of map some of this stuff out and say like, yeah, this isn't, we're not knocking your parents. We're not knocking what you've been through. We just now know that there's some slightly more effective ways of doing things. And so it's kind of outdated. Maybe it maybe worked at that time or it's outdated, but we found better ways. What do you think about us practicing these things? And so that's how I use it in like the pediatric setting, oftentimes with families, just helping them notice what their go-to responses are, understanding where those might come from, and then see if we can like broker a slightly more effective strategy. And the one thing I really want to highlight that Bridget just said, and it, it gets me hyped even thinking about it, is one of my fears about this, this conversation about ACEs is that we're going to start indiscriminately doing a lot of different things just because the research is there and we need to rid people of ACEs. One of the danger and unforeseen ripples that can happen, because we see this happen with other kind of things that we do the same approach with, is that it becomes very stigmatizing to people that maybe have been through ACEs or maybe even as a parent right now might be doing some things that we would define as an ACE. And so within these conversations, we got to make sure that we're doing this from a place of curiosity, of kindness, of validation, like all the things that Bridget talked about, to have people lean back into us. Because could you imagine as a parent, I think about this, I'm not even a parent, and I think about this, like if I walked into a doctor's office and someone told me about ACEs and some of those things were happening in the home that I currently oversee right now, would I ever bring those things up again? Like how much would I ever think about, it's like, oh my gosh, like, I'm just messing my kid up right now. That's basically what you're saying. That's a very disengaging conversation we need to handle with attentionality. Or even trying to convince somebody like, hey, well, you were through ACEs. Like what you described is physical abuse and you need to recognize that your parent, like you got to be careful on how you're having these conversations because sometimes culturally things aren't recognized a certain way. Also, somebody might be very proud of where they come from. They might have a very close relationship and they might have a difficult time distinguishing like, wait, my, I could love my parents. They could have been doing the best they could. And they perpetuated ACEs against me, which now means I'm more likely. For, like, you just, it's just a delicate conversation, but I think it makes it less delicate. Oh, I don't know if I want to say that. It can make it a more comfortable conversation when you truly are trying to point something out to them or try to, well, I need to have them see this. If you truly enter their world, see things from their context, live in their skin, and then think from that perspective, what would be the most helpful? And so you're not trying to win and show like, hey, I'm the clinician. I know this and research shows this. And when I'm in a room with a patient, that goes out. I have the research. It lives in my head. I know what these things mean. But I need to navigate a real heart-to-heart -heart type of conversation where I can live in their skin and talk about things that are going to be practical and useful for that person, not what I find to be useful. And building off of that again, again, it just gets me hyped when Bridget talks about this is we come from this and what we won't go into the details about, about functional contextualism, which just basically means that we believe every behavior that someone does is a response to their context and is serving some purpose. And we have to remember that within these conversations, because I tell you what, a lot of people that have been through maybe some difficulties and things that we might call as ACEs. The most amazing thing is that they're still alive, that they're still survivors, and they found out ways to get through their context. They found out ways to survive. And if we come in just, again, indiscriminately and say, you got to change these things, you got to stop doing those things, we're literally telling them maybe the way that they survived, what got them to this point, 
what makes them who they are, like they have to almost try to eradicate from their existence. That really was a survivor mechanism. So that curiosity, that, that, I don't know, that compassionate view of seeing what is going on with this human. And as Bridget said, being free of an agenda. I'm not talking about ACEs, so I'm convincing you about ACEs. I'm learning about ACEs so we can work together and come up with maybe some strategies to make sure that the parent is doing the things they want to do with their children. And even if someone is older adult that's dealing with ACEs, to recognize patterns and the way they responded to situations that might not be as useful as they were back in the day. I think that that's so helpful because you can quickly make the jump from like research to screener to stigma, right? Or like that's that's a mark in your medical record or that's a that's a conversation and a label. And and I think that particularly for me, I I react pretty quickly when it's like, okay, what does this mean for a kid in your life? Like as as a parent, as a caregiver, as a teacher, it, if you're thinking about that this kid in my life, this person in my life might have this this ACEs factor, like, or it might have the, these ACEs factors. Like, I think, first of all, it's, like you said, there can be that reaction of like, oh my gosh, am I a bad parent, caregiver, teacher because of that? So maybe I'm not going to disclose. But probably for every person that's working with a kid, there's also that strong drive to mitigate that risk. So can you talk a little bit about research and consequent strategies around like, okay, yes, now if you're a parent, so not from the clinical perspective, but like if you're a parent or a caregiver or a teacher and you know that this has happened, what are some of the things that you can do to mitigate that risk? Oh, Dave. Do you want me to go? Do you want to, yeah, I'll go first and then Bridge chime in. Or do you want to go first? Do you want to go first? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things because I feel yeah, yeah. my mind melting and I feel like you might be able to take it home. I like it. I like it. So if you are a caretaker of a, of a child and you kind of recognize that maybe some of your actions are either an ACE or similar to an ACE or on the verge of one, I think using a lot of self-talk of like, I was doing the best I can, I could with what I knew at the time and now I know better. And I think that I don't blame folks for having a high level of defensiveness or avoidance show up and want to like try to remove yourself from that. I don't blame people's brains for doing that. But I really do think the best thing a person can do is come face to face with it. And either they talk with their counselor about it, or they talk to a trusted friend or maybe a partner about like, hey, I think that this thing is happening. And that when not if when the shame comes up alongside of that, I'm saying, okay, I was doing the best I could with what I knew at the time. Now I've been informed that I, I, I need to do better and then refocusing, okay, what, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to take care of this child. And the best thing I think that people can do is model to their kids that we make mistakes and that it's okay to own up to mistakes. It's okay to apologize for mistakes and to practice doing things in a different way and helping the child to start rebuilding up their self-image via lots and lots of, as anybody who works with kids does, uh, catching them doing all the right things, as many right things as they can. There's the, the data that says, okay, for every criticism, you want three positives or five positives. I operate from a 30 to one for my head for, in my life, is just a 30, 30 criticism, or sorry, 30 positives to one criticism. And so that they can build up, like if you're a caretaker of a child, you can, right in front of your face, starting now, start rebuilding up your kiddo's self-image via catching them doing as many things at right as possible. And like I said, apologizing to them 
and saying mommy or daddy or grandma or whoever you are, we're not perfect and we're going to keep making mistakes. But I know that I don't want to yell at you at the top of my lungs anymore. I know that's not good for me and it's not good for you. And so mommy's going to practice and mommy's probably going to slip up. And but I'm going to try to do better. I, I think that there's a lot of value in in that simple. Yeah, I, I love what Bridget's saying. And I, I want to go back to the thing that Bridget said earlier about what Vincent Folletti said. I think the first and foremost thing that we need to recognize is that well, we can talk a lot about resilience and I'm a big believer in resilience. I'm a big believer in love. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. What we really don't have a lot of research out there that shows, hey, if we do these specific things after ACEs are present, that it ripples out in a, in a, in a good way. I, I think we need to be aware that the best intervention is being preventative. And probably the best preventative solutions that we can have is making sure that primary care is fully supported, that it can be a place that people can come to talk about these things and then we can intervene to start preventing some of those. That's why schools are important. That's why community interventions and after school programs and just different things that allow a context to be that ACEs just don't happen as regularly and often. So I think trying to be preventative, I think is a really important thing that we need to do. And I think just building off what Bridget said, I think we talk a lot about like in almost in a corny way, Bridget and I about love and the importance of love. And the one thing that we just know that seems to transcends all of human existence is that social connection and love that are made within those social connections ripple out in really amazing ways. They just, it seems to be a very, very protective and enriching and a thriving ingredient when human beings experience it. So as Bridget was saying, all these different interventions that parents can do with their kids, resting assured that love is something that when kids feel and humans feel, there's thriving that occurs. So what does love look like, though? That might be one-on-one -on -one time. That might be talking at the end of the day about how the day went, what went well, what, what are they feeling, creating a, an atmosphere of safety that if someone messes up, if a kid messes up, that it's not a bad thing to say they messed up. Almost like what Bridget was saying about modeling, if a parent messes up because they yelled too much to own that. And that reflects back to the kid that, hey, it's okay to own your mistakes. It's okay to say that we mess up. We all mess up. Trying to figure out what are the behavioral ways to demonstrate love between families and also teachers and community members. I think a lot of the things that we recommend for parents to do, teachers can also do as far as focusing on the things that kids are doing well in school. Focusing on social connection and healthy social connection. When we see things like bullying occurring, make sure that we're intervening in a contextual and kind way to make sure that that isn't, that is those insidious effects or maybe prevent it a little bit more from growing within that kid that's going through that. And then the other thing I would say, there's a lot of research about parenting. We know a lot of different things about parenting that can be really, really helpful. The one thing that we need to make sure of, though, and I'm a big believer in parent education. I think that's a really, really good thing. I think it could be a population-based approach to a lot of the different things that we're trying to attack with in healthcare. It has to be, again, from a place of humility, of curiosity, and that incorporates someone's culture. Us just coming in and saying, you should parent this way. These are the things that you should do. That is not going to work. That has never worked. And that's not going to be engaging. That doesn't allow parents to be who they are and to bring them whole selves. So while I think parent education would be a phenomenal thing to do, making sure that we're coming from a place of humility, of curiosity, and one that has to be culturally influenced about how we're going about those interventions. I just want to add that, again, something simple that like a parent or caretaker can do like right, right away, just to get some of that momentum going is 
with that one-on-one time, allowing the kid to pick whatever that they're very, very interested in. And then you practice just trying to see the world through their eyes based on that empathy. And so it's not about correcting the kiddo. It's, it, it, it's not about anything other than being genuinely interested and curious in your own kid because you need to start infusing joy in the parenting relationship. And just really candidly, I'm not a parent. There's a reason I'm not a parent. And to be honest, I think it's the amount of responsibility and what it takes to have to be in that type of mindset. And I'm not saying parents out there need to be perfect, but I'm just saying it's a big, it's a big, big job. And you have all these things that you have to do. And in the mix of that, you can miss out on joy. And joy, as Dave is saying, with the love, joy, love, the joy piece of just enjoying your child, just being, like watching them play baseball or watching them do something that they're interested in, even something you're not interested in, like video games, something that you might think is a waste of time. Genuinely show interest and just watch as they be, uh, I think is one of the best strategies to infuse within all the structure and how you got to get them fed and cleaned and they have to have their homework done and all these, you got to teach them respect and all those things that you have to do that there's at least some moments within the week, hopefully in the day, but within the week where you could just be, I, I think gives infuses a different element into that relationship. Bridge, that was awesome. Watch as they be. We should make a teaser about that. Watch as they be. That was cool. I try to do it as an aunt, but I understand an aunt is not the same thing as a parent, just like it. For the record, and I tell all of my people are like, well, that's crazy that you're like not a parent and you're doing this. And I'm like, I tell all the families I work with very transparently, straight up, like I don't know what you're going through. Oh. And even even if I was a parent, I still have a different context than they would. So so even just because you're a parent doesn't mean you know exactly what they're going through. And having that humility, as Dave, you were saying, I think is everything because they're like, wait, what? And you're like, yeah, and you just own it. And and the amount of tears that I get from parents. When you just straight up say, I don't know what you're going through, but I want to, I want to, like, I want to learn what you're going through so that we can come up with a strategy. Hell, that's an intervention right there. Whenever we notice that our mind has stopped being curious with someone, that's when we need to ground ourselves back into what we're doing. Whenever we feel like we got this and we haven't figured it out, again, that's going to lead us down a path of rigidity that doesn't have a lot of flexibility and openness to different things. We always have to remain curious. I love that bridge. That was cool. And I think that that's why we're here and we're having that conversation. And I also want to say that that totally resonates for me as a parent. So I, I don't knock anybody for not, not being a parent and giving some of that support and advice and guidance, because I think that oftentimes it's one of those things, too, where you can be in it and not seeing it. Like you need somebody to be outside of your experience to be like, OK, what's really happening? And I'll just say for, for those listening. One of the hardest things that I have to do is to slow down enough to actually play Legos with my son. Some days I'm like, if I have to make up one more bus crash scene with my kids' Hot Wheels and Legos, I'm, I, I'm just going to go cry into a pillow. But when you actually like can turn that side of your brain off, it's like, okay, cook dinner, respond to emails, and just like sit and play. It's like, okay, that's totally resetting. So I I love some of this. It, it can feel kind of like esoteric and out here like, OK, what do I really need to be doing as a parent? But I but I love just that grounding and, you know, here are some of the things that you can do to cultivate that relationship and that support, whether you're a parent or an aunt or a teacher or a soccer coach. Like th- these are the things that you can do. So I 
I really so appreciate and love how we've started with, okay, here's this thing that can feel kind of big and scary, ACEs, right? Here's all these things that can cause harm, and they're very important to be aware of. But then here are the other things that you can do to to mitigate that risk, to address that risk, or not even the risk when, when they have happened. And and then what can you do to continue to cultivate connection and a, a thriving life for the kids in your life? So I absolutely love that. And I think that that's a great place for us to kind of close our conversation. But I do want to give you a chance. Is there anything else that's really top of brain that you're like, okay, if there's a parent, if there's a doctor, if there's a nurse, if there's a faith leader, I want you to know this. I- anything kind of left hanging that you want to want to throw out there? Yes. Sorry, Dave, I want to go because I don't want to forget. I think that within the person who maybe has experienced ACEs and or currently might be perpetuating some some aspects of ACEs, just understanding how much resiliency and strength was there to get them to that point or having that conversation. There's so many parents in my mind that are popping up from that I've worked with clinically where we got tears in our eyes, both of us, we got tears in our eyes of them realizing, oh my goodness, I went through this and now I've done some of these things and reframing this of like, you are, oh, I just got chills. You are so brave for being willing to like sit with that. And I say, that's how I know you're a good parent is the fact that you you want to do different. You did the best you could with what you knew at the time. And now you know something different. And now we have to practice it because it's not going to be overnight. But will you be willing to go on that journey with me? Or it doesn't have to be just with me. They could get a group of moms or whatever to go on that journey towards like, I want to do different behaviors to my kid than what was done to me. And I'm not going to, it's not about putting down what I went through, like putting down the people who put me through it. It's not about anger and a resentment. It's about recognizing, my God, you are so strong that you made it through. And you're so strong to look yourself in the mirror. And you're so strong to want to give your kid something else. Like there's so much strength in these conversations. So these conversations, I guess that's the last thing I'm, I'm thinking is like, these conversations don't have to be like, oh, bummer. Those response, I have four aces and my kid has three aces. And so now there's no point to anything. It could be, there's so much strength in these conversations. And I don't want us to overlook that with the scary parts of what we talked about. Yeah. The only thing that my mind always goes to, again, if you're, no matter who you are within the community, never underestimate how a moment can ripple out. And I think that's the thing about if you're in a clinical realm, if you're in a a faith-based realm, if you're in a school, if you're in a community agency, if you're just walking down the street, if you're at a shopping center, never underestimate how a moment can ripple out within someone. And especially moments of love, curiosity and of compassion, they can have profound influence just from a, a moment. So never underestimate what a moment and how a moment can ripple out. I absolutely love that. And thank you both so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you do and the the lives that you're helping to support. So thank you. I so appreciate it and hope we get to connect on the podcast in the future. Our gratitude. Thank you so much. This is super fun. That wraps up our conversation for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate the time that you take out of your day. And as Dr. Bauman referred to, we can all just slow down and share a little bit more love and a little bit more life support. A quick reminder, 
We always appreciate it when you like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And as he said, please remember to just show each other a little life support. Take care, everyone. Thank you.